This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. There's a niche insight that I like. And the idea, if I have to put it in a nutshell, is like this. Those who suffer more are actually happier. And the idea mm. here is that when you have very little going for you and things are very, very difficult, what feels good is quite almost instantaneous or it's always quite there. Mm. When you are privileged and life is very, very easy, pain becomes an abstraction, right? And a mm. lot of it is just the void of having too much time, having things too easy, that there's no longer that you know, extension of yourself that real life actually kind of pushes you to. And that's sort of how you grow and, and learn things, right? You must be pushed to the limit enough mm. for you to know what you're made of. But if you're privileged and sheltered, the limit is very abstracted. Yeah. And you, everything is really about you wrestling with your demons, right? So this idea that kind of working through the mire is very, very important, you know. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School, the show that explores concepts, theories and society. I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat, joined this week by Sarah Young. You are a counsellor at Help University, focusing on sexual education, sexual awareness, among other things. Among other things. Among other I don't things. think that's the only thing okay. I'm doing, but sure, yes. We'll find out more about where <laughs> you're right. coming from today. And of course, a familiar friend of the show, Sandy Clark. You're an author, but also completing your studies in counselling at Monash. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk about, I guess, something along the lines of getting over happiness and finding the meaning of life. Tell us, how would you frame this topic? It's very intriguing to me. I mean, how did we first, how we first even got to this topic was when we were having a conversation when Sandy and I was just talking about how, not just in our own experiences at work, but just through the people that we meet, how a lot of them are very obsessed with the idea of chasing happiness mm-hmm. to the point that they get really stressed out when yeah. they're not happy all the time. And I, at one point I made this, I know, hopefully not too controversial statement that, you know what, happiness is utterly overrated. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he, he agreed with me. So I don't know, what's your take on it? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think there's a, a wonderful analogy, which is to say that if you take a computer or laptop, mm. you would never define it as a word processor or mm. as a search engine or calculator. It's, it's so much more than this. So if you take a human, human being, yeah. our emotional range is so diverse and so vast that to focus on this idea of being positive mm. and happy all the time, I mean, it has sort of psychological and social implications, one of which being if you're happy all the time, you know, people tend to send you for treatment yeah, uh, because they be declare you manic. Yeah, it'll yeah. be a bit too much weird. Yeah. Because if you're constantly happy, it's just... Yeah, and, and, okay? and, and of course, if you're happy all the time, if you're focused on this obsession mm. with being positive all the time, then as soon as life throws you a curveball, mm-hmm. you have no idea how to deal with the challenge or the trauma that you're faced yeah, with. Um, yeah. So it's not so great to always be chasing happiness, mm-hmm. particularly because it's always fleeting as well if mm-hmm. you're going chasing the, the sort of superficial happiness all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, is the problem with the notion of happiness or is, it the, is the problem in the notion of something to chase? And mm-hmm. the implication then being, should there be any chasing at all? Right? So what is the alternative? 
Well, the alternative comes from a 20-year research project by a psychologist called Martin Seligman, Mm. who did extensive research over a couple of decades. And he came up with this positive psychology model called PERMA, P-E-R-M-A. So that stands. So the, the idea of this is that all these concepts tie into true lasting happiness. So you have positive emotions, mm. engagement in what you do, relationships, meaning and accomplishment. Mm. And quite interestingly, he has said that positive emotions. So this is the thing that we always chase through pleasures, mm, through right. hedonistic pleasures. You know, what makes your face smile? These are quite fleeting, but these are the things that we chase all the time. However, genetically speaking, we are about. of our positive emotions are heritable. So if you're naturally quite a grouchy person, there's not much you can do about that on a a sort of psychological level. He said you can increase it by about 10 to 15%, but you're not going to get much higher than that. Whereas actually true lasting happiness comes from things like meaningful relationships, accomplishment, serving something bigger than yourself through meaning and engagement in what you do. So there is such a thing as happiness, Mm. but... We should not obsess over it. Is that what the I message think, is? Or Well, Sandy's going to give you all the theory and stats and stuff. I'll, I'll share from, I guess, my experience and my perspective just from talking with a lot of people. I think happiness as an emotion is, is, a, definite, is a definite thing. And let's face it, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to feel good about themselves and about the world around them. And that has always been a big motivator for many people to work hard to pursue the things that they're pursuing because at the end of the day when i do these things i feel happy i feel great but you know in the especially when when we have a, a lot of movements that talk about how happiness can be achieved if you do certain things i think the condition the condition we call happiness is unfortunately not something that people define to their own standards one of the things that we talked about is how, I mean, I agree, uh, Sandy, that a lot of people, when they come, for example, when they come for counseling or for therapy, the first thing they will always say is that they're not happy. I want to be happier. I don't know why I'm not happy. But when you talk to them more, it's not because I'm not happy, you know, because of all these things. It's that a lot of them find that they cannot sustain that feeling of happiness. Mm-hmm. So then I guess it becomes a question of why do you need to feel happy all the time? Mm -hmm. And if you go deeper in that, you will notice usually the people who are struggling to, let me correct that, not so much struggling, but craving to be happy all the time or wanting that feeling, that that high all the time is because something else is missing. So they they want meaningful connection with other people and they can't, you know, find a purpose for them to dedicate themselves to or they don't see why they're here. So the only other reason for me to be here is so that I can work towards my happiness. And that, I guess, can become a bit of a problem when the only thing you're chasing in your life is happiness. Yeah. So basically, happiness is an insufficient concept, right? Because I think, you know, it's it's like the word love. Mm. Uh, There's so much invested in it, but people understand and expect different things from it, right? Mm. So it seems like the challenge is not towards the concept of happiness or the desire to be happy, Mm. but the demand is to really define what that means, right, for every person. Is that what it is? Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's an interesting exercise that people can do at home and it involves, you know, folding a piece of paper in half Mm. and you write down what would make you happier in the future. 
So if I had these things, this would make me happier. And then the second column you write, mm-hmm. what makes me happy now? And generally what you tend to find from people is, you know, it's quite an obvious predictable list on the first half, which is, you know, I want a promotion, I want a new Mm. car, a new house, you know, designer clothes to win the lottery. But when you ask them what makes them happy now, it's more about the people I'm with, you know, the relationships I have. It's all really meaningful stuff that they have in their lives now. And to me, you know, when you say to people, is the glass Mm. half empty or half full? When you're really happy, you don't even notice the glass. You're not Mm. thinking about it. So happiness isn't something I would say that you chase. Happiness is something that if you can shift your perspective and you stay where you are, then it finds you through the things that Seligman talked about. So that doing stuff that's really engaging, Mm. doing something that's meaningful to you. And if you read Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Mm -hmm. Man's Search for Meaning, I mean, he was prisoner at Auschwitz concentration camp and suffered the most brutal atrocities you could ever imagine towards humanity. And even in that situation, they were still able to find some kind of meaning, even if it's to carry the burden of your suffering. And through that kind of meaning, it gave them kind of psychological and spiritual hope. And you could say in a kind of perverse way, there was a sense of happiness because he talks about the people who would sort of, you know, they wouldn't last long are the people who gave up hope, who gave up any hope of meaning. There was no positive emotion to be had in that kind of environment. So you had to look Mm -hmm. elsewhere to really find that real happiness in a sense. So, okay. There are many uh, accounts of happiness being profit here, but let's go to a more basic question. Is it a feeling? Is happiness a state of mind? Or is it something else, right? Um, mm, that's a very interesting yeah, question. Because I'm not into the, the sort of feeling. I don't know if there's even a school, the feeling school of happiness where it has to be like, you know, an answer to how you're feeling, right? Or as if we expand that definition to say something like more Aristotelian where you flourish doing what you excel at, mm. right? Mm. Uh, and and there's actually a lot of pain in there because to really flourish means there's a lot of growth and growth isn't always mm-hmm. feel good, right? In fact, there's a price to pay for growth. There's a lot of humility that it takes. And the picture you get from there is that happiness is not at all a feeling. Yeah. It's actually <laughs> like a state of yeah. being, an attitude towards life, yes. right? Yeah. And I think a lot of the premise is problematic when we hope to define it through a feeling, right? Because God knows what mm. we're feeling most of the time anyway. That's yeah. true, right? yes. So, <laughs> and then when we try to link that to the word happy, then all sorts of confusions start, right? Yeah, so you have some research that suggests when you're engaged in things that put you into a state of flow, whether that be your work or your hobbies or whatever, mm. what that means is that the challenges that you meet in life are just matched by your strengths. So there's a kind of tension there, like you say. So there's that element of needing to overcome the challenge mm-hmm. because if everything comes too easy, it's it gets, yeah, it's kind it gets of boring. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess you ask yourself, why would I bother doing this if it's so easy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have that, that sense of struggle, I suppose, that sense of growth that really facilitates the flourishing that, that brings you into a state mm-hmm. of maybe not happiness. I, I would I would suggest that happiness is a state. So, you know, something happens to you if you overcome the challenge or you're with people who you are close to, you're having a good time. It's a state. And then you're not aware of that. You become aware of it when you start evaluating it. 
So that's when the happiness actually disappears, which is sort of a a sort of Mm. Buddhist idea as well. It's like if you start to evaluate, it's like imagine you're having a massage and it's the best massage in the world. Then you're really sort of blissed out. But then you say, oh, this is really good. I have the massage for one hour. Half an hour has passed. Oh, I've only got another half hour left. It's like the magic's gone. The happiness is gone. Mm. So actually, there's some thought to say that when you're happy, you don't actually know it because you're so immersed in the thing. Yeah. 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 I guess it's about, I mean, I like how you point out whether is it a, is it a feeling and is it a, a state or something? Because, I mean, we know that the feeling we associate most to happiness is joy. Like the word joy itself refers to the feeling or the emotion. And like all emotions, they are fleeting in nature. They, they, in a way, you could argue that, you know, f- feelings aren't meant to last so long because, you know, you can't actually sustain a feeling of joy or sadness for an overly long time. Because if you do, then then people will, will wonder whether you're going to be okay. But and this is precisely one of the challenges, well, at least I've observed, especially in young people nowadays, where the idea that I should feel something positive that puts me above average mm-hmm. at least most of the time. Right, right. But because I don't have a name for this, they call it happiness. So my question to them mostly is like, so what happens when you're not in that moment? You don't have that specific positive emotion. What happens? And this is this is actually really boggling for them because in their heads, they're thinking, oh, I have two boxes. One is labeled happy. And I know that happy is supposed to make me feel this way. So I stuff all the experiences or the moments that fits this definition into this box. But what about the ones that actually don't fit? So what do I call it? then they will say, okay, if I'm not happy, then I must be sad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They make this either-or comparison. And um, it's also really strange because there are times where people will say, I'm not happy, but I'm not sad either, so I don't know what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you know, I agree in that when you try to you know, just give it this label, you know, happiness is therefore a feeling that should sustain, it's actually counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is where, uh, I mean, Sandy, this is something that we hope to get you for another session, but the question of emotional literacy is so important, mm. you know, because before we scramble for things like love or happiness or beauty or all these other ideal categories, right, there's something else brewing. And yeah. that, that is often too much to handle that we need mm. to name it, yeah. right? And I think not many people can handle that liminal yes. anxiety you know that like between not, yeah, actually yeah. Giving it, yeah. not having a meaning or name for what I'm feeling and then scrambling for a definition yeah. not everybody mm. can write that threshold but I think that's so important you know yeah. because mm. if we really want to you know be mindful or be just basically aware of what's going on we need to be able to read those ambiguities right but not everybody has that skill and the more I think about it it's causing people so much suffering. Right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah, because it's. I an don't expect- just mean students, but even people. Yeah, in the even 40s, it is right? literally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an expectation that you should always be positive. But if you think about it, from the time we are young, and we are growing up tends to be that we're kind of trained not to be aware of our feelings because mm. if you're too sad or you're crying or you're frustrated or angry, then you're not allowed to be those things. 
sort of on the other hand, if you're too happy all the time, people kind of resent that. So you tend to hold back exactly. your happiness and your your joy and your successes. And so so that can be bred out of us from an early age. And so what happens is we we suffer a lack of emotional imagination. So there's a whole range of emotions that we don't even know the names for mm-hmm. um, most people. And so we fall back in these maybe four, five, six sort of basic emotions. And if we don't fall into any one of those categories, then like you say, we fall into this kind of anxiety. It's like, mm-hmm. I should be feeling this way or that way, but I'm not. And because we don't have that kind of education and awareness, mm-hmm. then we're not quite sure what to do with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so it feels quite messy. Yeah. yeah. And we'll unpack a bit more of that uh, messy terrain in the second part of the show. But yeah, I mean, interesting questions for those of you who are seeking happiness. I guess all of you are uh, in one way or another listening to this. But perhaps this can be an occasion for critical pause. I am Ahmad Fatrahman alongside Sarah Young and Sandy Cloud this week. We're talking about how to unpack happiness in more detail. This is Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fatrahman. Joined this week by Sarah Young, a counsellor, and Sandy Clark, counsellor in training and also an author. In the first part of the show, we unpack the meanings and different registers of happiness that people struggle to understand. And we ended on the note of the anxiety on the other side of not knowing and uh, how to better handle that. We're all in varsity or academic settings, right? Whether Mm. students or counsellors or instructors. And one of the things I realised, having taught for about 10 years now, is that the newer generation, and again, I'm sounding like some uncle now, but (laughs) they're getting more and more neurotic. let Let me just describe what this means. There's this constant state of being divided, right? Mm. And this is largely to do with their context because information now is so vastly available that your constant mode is to question everything, mm. even though you don't realize it, even though this is not something you actively, consciously do. But the fact that you are just in the stream of constant information, constant stimulation, because you're on your phone all the time, it's harder to be mindful, it's even harder to be still. Let alone go yeah, yeah. Yes. Exactly. Oh, gosh. Uh, so this is, I guess, the blessing and the curse, right? The blessing is that the world is more vast than any other generation before. But they're just more anxieties because they're just more unresolved questions regarding who they are and what the world is like. Right? Mm. I mean, this is something that you encounter as well in your, in your students or in the people you counsel. This is actually very close because, I mean, I, I, I lecture as well at HELP. And it's precisely as you say, when you, when you talk to them, they are always kind of in a hurry to figure out the reason behind everything. And this includes things like, look, uh, you know, like precisely earlier, Sandy said, when you can't pinpoint or put your finger down to what you're feeling or, you know, not quite feeling what society would expect us to feel when something happens, they always question it. They have to ask why. So why am I... Why am I not as happy as I think I should be? Why am I not excited? There must be something. So they go through this list in their head. And when they've ruled out everything that has to do with, you know, whatever goes on, usually the conclusion they come to, then there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. And then that's usually when they end up through my door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think aside from that, when we also talk about, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I don't know whether the word neurotic is the word I would use, but... I do agree that there is this perception that it's not okay to lose out right, right. in the world. And it's not okay, therefore, to lose out to moments 
of happiness. So right, right. when much earlier you talk about, you know, whether the chase is the problem. I don't think it's wrong to chase happiness because I think the chase or the the drive it gives you, it can make a lot of people achieve a lot of great things. But when it becomes a thing of like, I want to chase happiness, I need to chase it because if I don't, then I'll lose out. It makes you wonder whether, you know, what else is waiting beyond that? So what if you've achieved that so-called happiness? What next? And actually, that sometimes come true. I mean, when we talk to much older adults, for example, and they will tell you things like, look, things are great. You know, I, I, I have all these things. I've achieved the goals. Life is great, but I still don't know why I'm not happy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you have that demographic of 30-somethings and 40-somethings feeling mm. that they're missing out on the world mm, because mm. the younger people like 20s and 21s they, their world is more exciting and they feel like you know yeah. there's a sort of suspension between realities right between mm. like on one hand sort of settling for your finitude settling for your limits on the other hand like mm. wanting to be a part of that mm. sort of like that feeling of the first time for everything right yeah, which 19 yeah, yeah. year olds kind of excel at but thinking about the search, like how much of this is not really a problem of happiness, but about desire itself, you know, and the sort of yeah. suffering that kind of breeds too. And it's sort of desiring maybe unhelpful things, as, as, as Sarah uh, touched on. It's that just one more mindset. It's mm. I have all the things, but just one more and I'll be happy. One more mm. and I'll be happy. Mm. And you made a great point about social media and the problems it causes for younger people which is when we were growing up in the olden days um, <laughs> b- no before the internet when all we had was telephones kids <laughs> when you were conversing with friends usually you would have one-to-one feedback or maybe five-to-one mm-hmm. feedback mm-hmm. with people who knew you really well and so you had that sense of connection that sense of support whereas now when you're blasting content out on social media it's pretty much a global audience yeah. almost And so you have lots of people who don't know you, who don't have an understanding of what you're like or your motivations, can give you back some feedback that's going to really hurt. Mm -hmm. And so you feel isolated and rejected and misunderstood. And so it becomes a sort of vicious cycle because because of that isolation and rejection, you need to pursue something that really grabs that back and then goes beyond. So I, I think ultimately... Happiness is, is, for me, is really about having a proper connection with people. I, I think, I mean, if you talk about Seligman's work, I would suggest that relationships, having meaningful relationships mm. is like the cornerstone of having proper happiness. That's why you see in religious people who go to church or the temple every week and they meet up with their parishioners, fellow parishioners. They seem to be more psychologically better adjusted because they get that support, because they get that connection. They're not looking for likes or follows or yeah. hashtags or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's real authentic connection. Yeah. But, you know, if, if I were to add to that, I mean, if you look at literally every single psychological theory that's been published, new and old, you will notice that there is always one very consistent theme behind every theory, and they all have to do with building meaningful relationships. In fact, when we talk about, like, you know, the desire of happiness, for example, I mean, desire in itself is is instinctual, I guess. You know, everybody's born with desire or born with wants. I think that's that's something that's kind of natural. But the picture that you put in your head about what you want at the end of the day, if chasing happiness is like trying to find something in real life that would fit that picture in your head, then sometimes we see the situation where people put really impossible pictures in their head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of the times, because there are so many different pictures nowadays out there, when we talk about information being so readily available, there are now so many examples of how you can be happy. I think a lot of people have, these are all the possible pictures. A lot of things get lost in the mess of information. Yeah. So when I talk to people, one of the major things that we notice when we talk about, oh, okay, people who are not too happy is, is usually because they lack meaningful relationships. They can connect to others, but they don't get the connection at a level that they feel fulfilled by it. Yeah. And because they don't have a specific someone to connect to or you know specific people to connect to, then they feel like something is missing. Yeah. Although mm. I want to challenge that a bit because mm. uh, there is this very common strand of thought that, mm. that for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. idealizes what relationships offer, in a sense. I mean, I agree with you, we do need meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But to make that jump from meaningful relationships to happiness is something I question, you know. Meaningful relationships are a lot of work, a lot of frustration, a lot of disappointment. You know, and a lot of times, people want to be happy as an escape from the meaningful relationship. <laughs> I mean, that's the reality of well, it, you know? That, that is true, though. So, that is true. So I don't, I don't disregard the value of meaningful yeah, relationships. Yeah. But I think the virtue is in the disappointment, actually. It's not in the mm-hmm. so-called happiness at the end of it. You know, for the mm-hmm. most part, mm-hmm. we grow out of those disappointments because we can bond with it rather than impersonal disappointments with, say, like, somebody was signing, giving you a parking ticket or something, right? But this is our, like... Disappointments you can identify with because mm. these are people that you care about, right? So there's a bigger story to disappointment than just that moment of hurt or betrayal or whatever, right? Mm. So I wonder about that, A. And B, I remember, and maybe this is the virtue of growing up here, that not long ago, being happy was tied to being virtuous. And mm. religious traditions are always emphasizing this. What does it mean to be happy? Be a good person. Right, <laughs> and the Platonic tradition kind of glosses this, you know, with like you know harmonizing the soul or whatever. But nowadays, and this is thirty years later, the question of virtues and happiness is almost divorced. Happiness is this abstract thing that you have to search for. Where, you know, if you look at the Platonic, Sophistic, or religious traditions, it's about well, mm-hmm. do good and do enough good. It's almost like cost benefit sort of logic but it sort of makes sense to me now maybe it's the age too but sort of like do good accumulate yeah. it enough yeah. you look back to history of good deeds you're going to be happy you're going to be okay well during you know? dur- <laughs> during one stay I had a Buddhist monastery in the UK um, right. I was talking to this monk about meditation and I said, what's the fundamental point of meditation because I can't figure this out even now and he said well the point of meditation is to ask yourself what is real happiness and what is missing from your life that's preventing you from having that deep, lasting happiness? And usually it's because, as Sarah pointed out, something is missing. Mm. And I think the problem when we chase, let's call it superficial happiness, I think apparently Socrates was supposed to have said something like, no one ever makes a decision to create any kind of bad outcome. Every decision we make is geared towards fulfillment. Mm, mm, mm. We're just often misguided about that. So where religion, I think, can bring happiness is that it gives you a kind of framework by which if you adhere to the principles, then you'll lead life in such a way that takes you away from the desire in the first place that leads you to needing that fix of happiness because it gives you something more substantial and, and more lasting in a sense. So as it was described to me, meditation was about, look, it basically tells you what you're missing and then how you really you know perform off the meditation cushion to then 
go and live your best life. And yeah. through that kind of virtue, then you get real happiness. The problem is that takes time. Yeah. And yeah. we don't want to take time over happiness. We want <laughs> yeah. to get the quick matches on Tinder or the, you know, the food delivery guy to come within 10 minutes or the internet connection to never fail. Yeah. So it's that instant gratification that's really messing things up, I would mm. say. Yeah. It's the fact that people kind of don't want to work for it and don't want to wait for it. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I, I think the idea that I mean, it's a slightly different take on how when we talk about, you know, being virtuous or having traditional values being part and parcel of happiness is I think the idea that when you follow certain traditions or values or religious teachings, it builds upon two other aspects that actually is a part of happiness, which is purpose and meaning. Mm. When somebody tells you, I don't know, well, you know, when you're a kid and your mom tells you, you know, you need to do these things because you need to be a good person. You're not thinking, okay, because I want to be a good person, whatever. It's just about, okay, there is meaning behind these actions. If I do these things, it's good in what way? And usually parents will tell you, you know, okay, don't be a bad person because you don't want to hurt other people. It's not good, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the loss of that aspect, the aspect of reconnecting back to purpose and meaning and how sort of following through the values, the importance of these values can actually give you something more fulfilling than what we say superficial happiness. If I'm going to chase the next, you know, material thing or uh, something high that I know, the next yeah. high, it has no lasting impact on my life. But the belief is that because it's immediate, it should have a very strong impact and therefore a lasting impact. Yeah. When in reality, it, and this is what we, we realize when we talk to a lot of clients, is that I want something. And through, let's just say through therapy, you figure out a way to get there. A lot of them hesitate at the amount of work it takes. Yeah, yeah. They get a little bit intimidated sure. by, wow, I didn't realize that for me to feel better, I need to do work. Yeah. But actually, that's the reality. You do have to work to feel better. The element there is time, right? Because mm. work takes time. Exactly. And we're always in a rush. God mm. knows to where, but everybody feels <laughs> like they're rushing. I wonder right? why. <laughs> and I think that robs us of a lot of things, right? But mm. again, it's largely due to how we're corner in a system where we always have to be productive mm. we always have to like be quote-unquote useful that you know the idea of doing nothing is seen either as a luxury or an aberration or something mm. like that you know when for most of human history people just did nothing and they had less neurosis less diseases cleaner air i mean you know i don't <laughs> want to romanticize it but right. there were other things going on there too that were terrible you know but we don't have to throw the, the baby with the bathwater right in a mm. sense where mm the way in which we find ourselves confronting these questions leave us at a disadvantage in terms of the choices we can make, in terms of even the sorts of, you know, people we meet, you know, because of our class mm, differences mm. or whatever, you know. So just taking control of time again is so important. Yeah. You know? I and mean, just feeling that you have enough time, which is the most empowering thing you can let yourself feel, I feel. I mean, interestingly, there, there was some studies done, it was a comparative study between people who enjoyed hedonistic pleasures, so all these fleeting but instantaneous pleasures, such as, you know, going to see a movie or, you know, uh, spending money on in shops for clothes, etc., and people who did something philanthropic, so volunteering at a soup kitchen, helping out with a charity. And what they found was that the people who uh, enjoyed the hedonistic pleasures only tend to suffer more from things like anxiety, depression, stress, because they're always rushing for the next thing. Whereas people who are forced to take time and volunteer and help another person, they found that six months later, 
levels of depression and anxiety dropped and levels of life satisfaction you know, shot through the roof because you're you're doing something that's meaningful you're literally slowing down it's taking time mm-hmm. and you're not in that space where you're always having to be productive mm-hmm. so that you can earn enough money to go and buy the new iPhone it's something about you know giving back to people and yeah. taking that time to just be with another person yeah mm. I guess it's the whole idea that if you've invested actually the more time you've invested into something when it actually does bear fruit it's actually more yeah. fulfilling mm-hmm. so yeah. that seems to be Something that people don't think about nowadays. So, I mean, to come back to your point about, you know, in the sort of real olden days, people didn't have, uh, you know, sort of pre-industrial revolution. People would have been sort of, I would say, psychologically sort of better off because they didn't have to rush around. They didn't have to produce. They didn't have to, you know, get to the next thing and the next thing and have all this to-do list. They had time to just slow down, enjoy life. I, I think that's the question for me and why I'm so interested in existential philosophy because ultimately you ask the question, what are you doing this for? And it's not until you get to your sort of old age you think, ah, mm. I should have done this differently, you know? Yeah. So trying to sort of learn those lessons earlier on could be a, a great benefit to people. Yeah. There's a Nietzschean insight that I like and the idea, if I have to put it in a nutshell, is like this. Those who suffer more are actually happier. And the idea Mm. here is that when you have very little going for you and things are very, very difficult, what feels good is quite almost instantaneous or it's always quite there. Mm. When you are privileged and life is very, very easy, pain becomes an abstraction, right? And a Mm. lot of it is just the void of having too much time, having things too easy, that there's no longer that you know, extension of yourself that real life actually kind of pushes you to. And that's sort of how you grow and, and learn things, right? You must be pushed to the limit enough mm. for you to know what you're made of. But if you're privileged and sheltered, the limit is very abstracted. Yeah. And you, everything is really about you wrestling with your demons, right? So this idea that kind of working through the mire is very, very important. You know? So I'm trying to look back and think about the valuable disappointments I've gone through. Right, things mm-hmm. that were very mm-hmm. unpleasant, but at the same time allowed me to to understand things better or to make better choices later on. Right, but those things were not pleasurable, but just encounters with duress. Right, but mm-hmm. duress that actually revealed to me what actually in the end mattered, and this includes people as well. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. I've been doing martial arts more and reading up into that stuff, and I go to a gym and I see a lot of you know, strong, muscular people doing very impressive moves. Like, Yep, I know, feel your pain. This, <laughs> well, I feel pain. I go like, wow, these guys, they're impressive, but can they handle disappointment? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So of course, yeah. It's really about, you know, uh, again, you go back to that, right? Because disappointment and happiness are very, very close, right? We they, they inform one another. And those things are opportunities to, I mean, disappointments are actually opportunities to, mm-hmm. to get closer to what, what we think well-being is. Well, you become sort of literally informed through painful process of growth. And I think from an evolution perspective, our sort of, you know, Mm. early humans who were always happy didn't survive. And it was through that need to be sort of cautious, that need to overcome challenges, overcome, you know, misfortune. It was that kind of growth and information that helped our species to survive. And so there's that sweet spot of having... Enough pleasure, but just enough challenge to make us push beyond the boundaries of where we are Mm. now. It's like when you're teaching a kid to speak a language or to learn to speak a language. And, you know, you you don't 
shoot too high nor do you stay at their own level you always aim just above where they're at so they can reach it and and feel satisfied when they accomplish it but if you always sit at the same level all the time then they don't grow and I think with the same with happiness people often assume that you know if you find happiness it's game over and that's fine and it sort of is but in a bad way because you don't learn anything else if you're if you're really happy all the time what do you, you want to do want you change. just want to yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah, yeah. want to improve i mean yeah. it's not quite happiness but if you think about say the concept of resilience it's the same thing there is you need the concept of adversity before you can yeah. learn to be resilient and i mean i like how you brought up the idea of valuable disappointments mm-hmm. and it's precisely this thing that it seems a lot of people are now struggling with nowadays because disappointment is disappointment but i don't see how when you're disappointed, how can you make use of it? How can you make meaning out of, you know, why are you so disappointed about it? What is your experience of that? Now, how do you take that experience and then, you know, use it to your advantage so you can learn to, you know, yeah. move forward? And yeah, yeah. yeah, that seems to be that seems to be something that perhaps is important. I appreciate how human disappointment is mm. in a way that happiness isn't, right? In a way that I don't think dogs are... Well, maybe, again, uh, this is going to be very speciesist of me, but I don't necessarily know if other animals get disappointed. I do know animals get happy, yes. right? But not, okay, we find they get disappointed, but tomorrow is another day seems to be something that they excel at better than humans, mm. you know? Living in <laughs> well, the present. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, again, I don't know. You know what? That sounds actually wrong. I have to, I have to talk to an ethologist about it, but I do, I do want to kind of meditate on the sort of openings that, you know, historically frustrations that afforded culture, mm. you know? Mm. So, uh, grieving, for example, yeah. art, right, mm. music. I don't know, show me a monkey that can make a documentary, right? So, <laughs> I, I don't know. But again, I'm gonna, you know, people are going to call me out on this. But I, I just want to emphasize that unique place that brings us closer to our humanity that disappointment offers. Mm. Yeah, know, so. I've never seen a dog struggling to get up in the morning. You know, this life's not worth <laughs> no, it. I, you know, no. I've had the same snacks for two days in a row now. <laughs> you know, but then there are these yeah. videos about <laughs> grieving dogs or yeah. whatever. But then, you know, okay, you see that. But all yeah. things considered, I mean, what, where do these things take us? Right, and mm. I don't necessarily know the paths that they open for animals are as rich. Mm. In the yeah. I, I think I suffering know. ultimately leads to problem solving because we're we, we, uncomfortable and we don't want to get out of it. Yeah, so, we so, so I mean, everything from the wheel to the hyperloop that Elon Musk is yes. developing, it's like, <laughs> how, how, do, how do we get this from oh, this God. point to that point yeah. very quickly? And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's not out of orgies and parties, no, you know, they're actually out of. That's a problem Fallen we need to states, solve. It, it feels yeah. like the, cre- yeah. the creative impetus comes out of like deep resignation sometimes. You've got to just resign in order for the field to clear that you can make yeah. options. It's like you mentioned about art. It's basically kind of your suffering being expressed. Um, I have a, a friend back home who's a prolific artist mm. and he basically says that he, he creates anytime he's feeling down or mm. uh, he suffers from depression. So if he has an episode and he produces the most colourful, vibrant stuff and it's quite interesting to watch, but he can't do it mm. when he's feeling okay. Right, right. Yeah. But, I, but I think that's very important to note though. Because, I mean, I guess people nowadays seem to struggle with the idea that it's not okay to be not okay. Yeah. yeah. When I, in and reality, on, on that point yeah. too, and this is another episode, I'm quite, well, like, before going on air, I complain about this neuro fat. Everybody's trying to be cool and talking mm-hmm. about brain parts now. The other thing that is something that I, I it comes rubs me the wrong way. I can't articulate it because I don't have the technical language, but everything is a disorder now. 
There's nothing know? wrong with just being, you know, weird and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I don't get like, why no, people that's a disorder. Feel... That's a disorder. I'm just like oh, actually, yeah, you know. I I don't understand it either. I mean, I'm in the mental health industry. I've been a psycho student for like the longest time. I still don't understand why people think it's not okay to not be okay. Yeah, you wake f- up in the morning, you feel crappy. Because you, you need it. you need an idiom to explain our fallibilities, you know. But yeah. when it's a disorder, then it closes off discussion menu. Anyway, we can go on and on. But yeah, thanks again, Sarah Young. Thanks again, Sandy Clark. How can we follow? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Instagram? You can plug your your aliases here. Um, I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. Okay, um, LinkedIn. I'm there most these days. Okay. I'm on Facebook, I suppose, if you <laughs> want to be looking for me on Facebook for some weird reason. But the easiest way is probably if you're interested in... Okay, a little bit of a shameless shout-out to the work that I do. But if if anybody out there is you know looking to understand more about themselves or whatever we shared today somehow hit a chord with you you could actually just google cpcs which okay. is where we work or you could go to www.cpcs-helpuni.com and look us up and if you ever feel you want to talk to someone just give us a buzz sounds good you can email the show bfmnightschool.gmail.com look us up on facebook uh, type night school in the search space or download our app at the apple app store and google play thanks so much again sarah and sandy can have you on for a different discussion extending some of the themes we touched on today. I'm Ahmad Farahma and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.